appreciate your prayers that uh, what I have to say is helpful and correct. Um, the uh, past few times that I've come up to speak, I've talked about um, some fundamental things, basic things, um, which is important for me working through these basic things because I certainly haven't mastered them yet. So I appreciate your your attention and um, uh, having the opportunity to talk about these things. Uh, I believe the first thing that I spoke about, the first subject was grace, and I also talked about faith uh, and about good works. And one thing that ties all of those subjects together is the lack of human control, that um, we don't, I don't have any control over God's grace. I don't have any control over my faith. That's something that I get through grace. Uh, also, my good works, the good things that I do, those aren't mine. Those are in the control of God. And the Bible tells us about all of these things. Um, just to briefly review, uh, in, in the book of John, chapter 6, verse 44 to 45, talks about grace. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. It's not up to the person, it's up to God. It's through grace that we have faith. Uh, The book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And then uh, that raises the question of what is faith? And um, Paul tells us in the book of Hebrews that faith makes us sure of what we hope for. It gives us proof of what we cannot see. That's uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And so faith isn't based on our human faculties or our decision making. It's not something that we choose. Uh, And our good works also are from God, as I've mentioned before, uh, Ephesians, again, chapter 2, verse 10. uh, Paul talks about how God determines our good works. And the reward for those good works is God. Uh, Brother Robert Cook sent a verse to me uh, after I spoke last time that that talks about this. It's uh, from the book of Genesis, chapter 15, uh, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And so God is in control of all of these things. Uh, God is the reward uh, at the the end of everything and for everything. Um, And and so our decision-making doesn't play a part in this. And what I'd like to talk about just briefly today is about... Uh, when humans, when I try to usurp that um, decision-making of God, that God's decision is what is good, but as a human being, um, I want to decide what's good. And that's something that has happened ever since the beginning, or very close to it. Uh, You can go back to the first chapters of Genesis, And 
God decides what is good. And the, in the first chapter of Genesis, God made light. God saw the light, that it was good. And uh, God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. Uh, he said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he the seas. And God saw that it was good. He also made the uh, the, the animals and the plants. Um, In chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so God has decided what's good. Um, But then as soon as humans appeared, they wanted to decide what was good. And so you have uh, in, in the Second chapter of Genesis, uh, God tells Adam that he should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's not good. You shouldn't do that. Um, That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 to 17. But it was a desire to know good and evil, to be like God that led Eve to eat from that tree. She determined that it was good. After God had told her that it wasn't, after God had told Adam that it wasn't, Adam told her she knew what God had said, but she decided that it was good. And it wasn't, there's nothing to suggest that she had an ulterior motive or thought that it was bad. She said, She saw, or the the Bible tells us, she saw that it was good. So, verse 6 of chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And so, she sees that it's good. This is a good thing. It's going to make me wise. And what's wrong with wisdom? We all want to be wise. Standing here today, I want to be wise. I think that's something that's common to all of us. But God said it wasn't. And so by taking on the role of defining what's good and what's evil, if we try to do that, We are taking on God's job. So Eve took on God's job and she made a bad decision that she thought was good. And I think that tying this back to to grace and faith, making these kinds of decisions about what is good and what's evil is employing free will. So we decide what's good. We decide what's bad. And the, the fundamental, well, what, 
what happened with Eve um, and with Adam was that they defied God in order to exercise free will. And really, um, it's, uh, it's a precondition. So Eve decided that she was going to uh, decide what was good or bad in defiance of God. And so there's that defiance of God as a fundamental part of free will. And so then, again, tying that back to the ideas of grace and faith, if the idea is that we could control God's grace, um, then we're putting ourselves above God. If we can control uh, our faith, then we're putting ourselves above God. If we can control what's good or bad, we're putting ourselves above God. And we know that we can't do that. We can't even follow God's law when it's laid out for us. So by when God's law is laid out for us, we can see what's good. But by trying to apply that, by trying to decide how, how that's good or how we can um, make it work to our benefit, to things that we think are good, it's unsuccessful. And so you have uh, what happened under the law. Um, And, you know, Paul relates that in uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 32. Verse 31 and 32. Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness. So it's righteous law. Followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And so by trying, by trying to do good, by putting themselves in the place of deciding what is good and putting their efforts behind it, that was a stumbling stone. And in fact, if you look at Corinthians... Paul talks about how um, uh, trying to follow the law doesn't just save, not save you. It's uh, the strength of sin. First um, Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. And so it seems intuitive that as a human being, that you figure out what's right, you, you see the law, and you do that. But I don't think it's quite that simple. I think the Bible tells us it's not that simple at all, that uh, it's not something, it's not decision that we can make. It's um, not even the decision that we can make when we're trying to follow God's law all the time. And you can see that with the experience of Paul. Back when he was named Saul, um, he was part of a group that stoned Stephen to death. Um, but at the time that he was doing it, he thought he was being mighty righteous. Right. He persecuted the church because he was religiously eager. Um, and he talks about this in the book of Philippians. 
that he was blameless under the law. So he was doing these things which obviously are bad. Persecuting the church of Jesus Christ is, is, a, is a bad thing. Um, but he was doing it after judging that it was good in his own mind. Um, and so I think it's important to keep that in mind when thinking about uh, what is good, what's bad, and most importantly, our role. That our role is, is low. <laughs> that God decides these things, and it's important to know our place. Thank you very much. Appreciate what Brother Ben has brought out. I thought of this uh, portion of Scripture that sort of puts it in perspective for us that, uh, and boy, we can relate to it so much, uh, so often. In Romans chapter uh, 7, Paul says that uh, he has this ongoing inward struggle, even to, to know and do what's right. And he says, for that which I do... I allow not, and for what I for what I would that I do not, but what I hate that I do. Anybody relate to that? Mm-hmm. You end up thinking thoughts that you wish you didn't think, saying things that you wish you didn't say, doing things that you wish you didn't do. And Paul says, you know, that that I would do or that I want to do, I don't, and that that I don't want to do, I do. And so That's another reason that we don't put it in, that he didn't put it in our perspective. Paul comes down, and and Brother Danny and I were talking about this verse uh, last night, the latter part of this verse right here. But he just starts out and he says, That that I would do, I allow not. That that I would not do, I do. But what I hate, that I do, that do I. He says, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I, it's, it, it didn't, it wasn't God that caused me to do, do it. He said, it's my own sin. It's my own, uh, my own sinful choice, my own sinful desires that caused me to go against God, to go the wrong way. Paul said, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh. He says, here's something that I do know. There's something that I recognize. Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh. He said, there dwelleth no good thing. He said, there's not anything good within me. If there's any blessings that we have through grace, through faith, that's a gift from God. It's it's by the mercy of Almighty God that we experience those blessings. Paul said, as far as I realize, I I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And he says, this is what I've concluded about my situation. He says, for to will is present with me. Sometimes it is. Not always, but sometimes. He says, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. He says, even if I have the desire to know what's right to do, He says, how to perform that which is good, I find not even how to do that. It even takes the blessing of God to know how to perform any good. For the good that I would do, 
He said, the good that I would do, not I do not, but the evil that I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Boy, isn't that the case? Even when you're desiring to do good, it's amazing how that Satan is not far behind. He says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity into the law of sin, which is in my members. And and these last two verses right here, these last two verses right here, teach me that we do not have, that Paul did not give evidence that in his mind, that he had a life of progressive sanctification and that he was getting better and better along the way and that he would be almost perfect when he went home to be with the Lord. Paul knows more about himself right now than he ever knew about himself. And he said, this is what I conclude when I know about myself. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. He didn't say I'm pretty good and getting better and just about to finish my course and I'm going full steam ahead. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? He said, I'm really and truly I'm looking forward to a deliverance where I'm not going to have this struggle with Satan, this struggle with sin about wondering what's right and what's wrong. Now, God writes some things in our heart and in our mind, and he's the one that does that. And he teaches us to know him by what he does, a work of grace. And our Hebrews 8 tells us that he writes it in our hearts. He puts it in our minds and we are his people and we call upon him and we know that he is our God because of what he does by writing it in our hearts. But he says right here, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he doesn't stop there. I'm so glad he didn't just end it right there. Paul said, the more I live, the more I know about myself and the more I realize I'm a wretched sinner. But he said, there's a day coming that there's going to be a great deliverance for me. And that's what we're concerned about. And so Paul says it this way. I love this. He says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Brother Danny and I were talking about this verse. And Brother Danny said, there ought to be some improvement. There ought to be some uh, sanctification along there. And you're right. There ought to be. But the more that we know about ourselves, the more that we understand ourselves, if we are, are, are realistic about it, if we're honest about it, There's more that we abhor about ourselves and we look for that day when the Lord is going to change us and deliver us from that. And Paul is saying right here, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul says, I'm looking forward to the day that there's a great change coming. He said, I'll understand the difference in right and wrong. I'll know the right way and I'll do the right way. But I'm looking forward to that day that's coming. Appreciate what Brother Ben brought out. I also thought about, I'm not going to go there, but I thought about Jonah. 
and how that the Lord told Jonah to go and preach against the great uh, wickedness of the city of Nineveh, but he chose to go unto Tarshish. God didn't make him go to Tarshish. Jonah decided to do that of his own decision, of his own accord. He went away from the Lord. Heard someone say one time, if you don't feel close to the Lord, guess who moved? It's generally not the Lord. It's we go the wrong direction, just like Jonah did right there. The Lord knows how to get our attention. So we're looking forward to having a time of fellowship in our communion and feet washing service. And it's going to be immediately after we dismiss, as we mentioned. I want to just look at uh, some of the verses that highlight uh, and maybe our mind could be directed toward the, uh, the communion and feet washing service. Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22. If you want to go through and read the gospel accounts of the, uh, the Last Supper, you can read uh, Mark's account in Mark chapter 26, verse starts at verse 26. You can, I'm sorry, Matthew's account, verse, uh, chapter 26, verse 26. You can read Mark's account in Mark 14, or you can read Luke's account. John focuses in John chapter 13 on the feet washing portion of the service. John chapter 13, it does there. There's a few, few highlights I'd like to just glance at here in Luke chapter 22 as we consider entering into the communion service. The communion was set up by Jesus Christ. Uh, he set it up. He was the author of it. Uh, they were recognizing the Passover supper, but the last supper was between Christ and his disciples. And Christ set it up. And it was interesting that we're taught here that Christ set this up. He set up the communion or the last supper because he desired to have this fellowship with his disciples. And it's interesting that what we practice as the communion supper was set up by Jesus Christ. And it's continued down through the years with churches passing it down from one generation to the other. Brother Mark came early this morning. It was so good to see Brother Mark and Sister Chrissy and Luke was here. And we were talking this morning about uh, the communion services that we've had in the past. And I said, I can just in my mind, I can see just as clearly. I can see John Davis and I can see Roy Davis. I can see Brother Jim Dixon. I see Brother Al Perry. I see Brother Oris Jackson. I see all those folks that were gathered there that we've communed with through the years. Brother Cook, I remember your dad, how he enjoyed the communion service so much. And how that those dear saints that we have known through the years, we think back and we're blessed that we had the opportunity. Brother Mark mentioned Brother Ray Evers. I mean, I'm just talking about the brethren, the sisters as well. But those dear saints that God blessed us to have fellowship and communion with, they're now with the Lord. But the same example of this special uh, fellowship was set up by Christ. And then it's been passed down through the years from one generation to another. And we look at those that are now gone and with the Lord, Brother Polk and others that are now with the Lord. 
we had the blessing of sharing in that fellowship, in that communion. And then they passed it on down to us. They're with the Lord. One of these days we're going to be with the Lord. And some of these young folks that are here will be continuing in this tradition that's been set forth. So there's a blessing in fellowshipping through the communion. Luke chapter 22, we'll just kind of briefly read through some of the verses here. It's, it's uh, real good to sort of direct our mind toward what we should be thinking on uh, as we enter into this time. It's interesting that he doesn't tell us how often to have the communion. He says, as often as you do it. So it doesn't say, I know some churches that do it once a year. Some do it twice a year. Some four times a year. Some do it once a month and even more often than that. And so it doesn't say how often that we do it, but it does say that each time we do it, the purpose of doing it is to direct our mind back toward Christ. So everything about this service points us to Jesus Christ. Interestingly, Christ set it up because he had a desire to commune in this fashion with his disciples before he gave his life on the cross. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. That symbolic of God sparing the firstborn in Egypt. Uh, it says, now the chief priest and the scribes sought, sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. Judas was one of the twelve disciples. It's interesting right here how that it's just as plain as it can be, just as clear as it can be. What happened with Judas right here? And I'll tell you that if it wasn't for the grace of Almighty God, the grace that you talked to us about the grace that we believe if it wasn't for the mercy of almighty God, that could be any one of us right here that Satan entered into his heart. And look what happens. It says Satan entered into uh, uh, Satan into Judas surnamed Iscariot. And then he Judas went his way and communed with the chief priests and the captains how he might betray him unto them. Christ knew that Judas was going to betray him. Christ actually knew that Peter was going to deny him. And he brings attention to that here in a minute as well. And he says, and they were glad. The who was glad? The chief priest, the captains, those that were in positions of authority. It says the chief priest and the captains, they were glad and then they coveted to give him money, to give Judas money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude in more of a, of a private setting. But he says they were glad that, that one of his own, that one of his followers was actually going to betray Jesus Christ. And so then they... Uh, it says that they agreed to, to pay him uh, the sum of money. And it says, then came, came the day of the unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. And he, Christ, sent Peter and John saying, 
go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And so Peter and John said, they said unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, behold, when ye are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. And he said, follow him into the house where he entereth in. And ye shall say unto the good man of the house, the master saith unto thee, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished there make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down with his 12 apostles with him. And this is what's real special, I think, right here. That Christ says, he sits down with the 12 apostles that were with him. And he said unto them, and this was the, this was the beginning of this, uh, of this uh, celebration that Christ had with his disciples. He says, with desire. I think that's, I like how he says that. That Christ says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You know, I believe that there's still that same desire that Christ has with his people to commune in this fashion. I believe Christ is present with us. When we enter into this service, I think we ought to take it serious. I don't think we should just go through the motions, but I think we should take it serious and realize that it's Christ desiring to commune and fellowship with us in a special way. And so when we enter into it, our minds are to travel back to what Christ has done for us, the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're to travel back and our minds are to think about the suffering of Christ. They're to think of or to think about the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes folks have have advocated. I have not experienced it, that the actual uh, bread turns into the body of Christ and the actual blood turns into the the blood of Christ. And I, I don't see that this is symbolic for you and I. Is to be taken serious, but it's symbolic for us as we enter into it to trigger our mind and trigger our thinking and cause us to rethink what Christ has done on our behalf. So I love this verse right here, probably one of my favorite verses in this chapter. And he said unto them, he said, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he comes down and he blesses. He, he blesses the, the, the wine. He blesses the bread. He says, and he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this divided among yourselves for this. I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And then he says, and this is Christ communing with his disciples right here. It says that he took the bread and he gave thanks and he break it 
And he gave it unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So Christ is telling us the purpose of this uh, of this fellowship of this meal together. And the purpose of it is to direct our thinking and our mind back to the body of Christ and to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, when I first uh, came among the old Baptist, I had experienced this portion of the communion service. I had witnessed it and I had experienced it in other religious gatherings. But there's another part that we believe is very important that the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ himself tells us that we ought to do. That's in John chapter 13. Now, I don't know about you, but if Christ says that we ought to do something, then it's really not something that should be a topic of debate or discussion, or it should be something that we choose to do if we want or choose not to. If, as I can remember growing up, if my mother told me I ought to do it, that meant that you better do it just as quick as you can. It wasn't something that was optional, but it was something that she told me I should do and I should get busy doing it. Much more so for Jesus Christ. If Christ tells us that we ought to do something, that's simply what he says, then we just simply ought to do it. Let's look what he says. And just like most of the acts of obedience, there's a blessing that follows if we do it. There's not just a blessing in knowing about it, but there's a blessing in doing it. Let's read through this real quick. This is real good right here. Now, before the feast of the Passover, verse thir- uh, chapter 13 of John. I love this. I love this example. It's just as clear and it's refreshing and it's encouraging. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Uh, that's just throwing in a little bit of of sovereign grace, eternal security right there. That all that Christ loved, even before the foundation of the world that was given to Christ, it says that he loves them to the end. He's not going to stop loving us. Thankful for that. And supper being ended, the devil now having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. I'm so thankful that... The devil doesn't have all power. I'm so thankful that the devil can only do what God allows him to do. I believe we have the example in the book of Job that God places a hedge round about his people. 
I believe that God can remove some of that hedge if he so desires and so chooses. But I can tell you that every single one of us would be in the same situation as Judas if it wasn't for the grace of Almighty God. So don't point too many fingers at Judas because it could be us as well. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and he laid aside his garments and he took a towel and he girded himself. I'll 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 take this memory with me, I hope, to my grave. The very last preaching trip that uh, I had the blessing of taking Elder Compton on. He was 102 at the time. And we went to a little church, Malvern, uh, uh, Arkansas, just a little bit south of Little Rock. And we had a weekend meeting. And at the end of the service, we had the communion and feet washing service. And Elder Sonny Phelan asked Elder Compton, he said, is there a portion of this service that you would like to uh, take the, uh, the wine, the bread or the feet washing? And he said, uh, I'd like to talk about the feet washing. Elder Compton had reached the point that he couldn't see to read. He would ask others to read a portion of scripture. But rather than, than read it in detail, he got up and he went by example and he taught this portion of the communion. It says, in supper being ended, it says um, that uh, he riseth from supper and he laid aside his garment. I'll never forget, Elder Compton took his coat, he laid it aside. He took a towel and he girded himself. And it says, he poureth water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, this is Christ washing his disciples' feet. Elder Compton couldn't see to read this. He would ask others to read some, but he acted it out by taking his coat and putting it aside, by taking the towel and girding himself, by going over to the basin and pouring water into a pan. And I'll never forget what he said, and this was a special blessing He didn't live but about two weeks after this. He went home to be with the Lord. But he said, normally when I wash feet, he says, I look for the youngest person in the crowd, the youngest young man in the crowd to wash their feet. And he said, but since I don't, I'm a visitor here and I don't know who that might be. He said, I'm going to ask Brother Stephen if I can wash his feet. That's always a blessing when we enter into this service. But I tell you, when you have a 102-year-old minister, bow down to wash your feet. And then in about two weeks, the Lord takes him on home to be with him in glory. That's a special blessing that you have. I wouldn't take for any amount of money those blessings of being able to wash feet with Elder Compton, to be able to wash feet with my grandfather, with these dear old saints that are now with the Lord. I have those memories and they're special, special to me. And every time we do it, I remember the first time that I had communion. It was such a special, special blessing. And every time since then, it has as well. So Christ is. uh, Christ kneels down to wash the feet of his disciples. And it's interesting right here that Christ is reaffirming a lesson right here. 
just around this time, some of the disciples, and they had the, the habit of doing this, they, 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 wanted to, they wanted to have the best seat in heaven. They wanted to be recognized in heaven. And they asked Christ about that, and Christ knew what they were thinking. And, and Christ teaches through this lesson right here that it's not the individual that has achieved a high rank or a high position of authority. But Christ says that the greatest in the kingdom is the servant. And Christ teaches that himself right here. And he did it by example. Then cometh Simon Peter to him and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And, and, and uh, Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him said, and said, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. I, I think that Peter, Peter was just trying to figure all this out. And, and, and Peter was saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not worthy for Christ to kneel down and to wash my feet. And Christ was teaching the lesson of being the servant here. And Peter, uh, he said, and then, then Christ answers him and he says, if I, if I wash thee not. And, and of course, Christ is talking about Peter, if, if I haven't washed you by the blood of Christ and if your sins are not forgiven by what I sacrificed for you, you have no part with me. Peter, all of a sudden uh, shifts gears a little bit right there. And Peter said unto him, uh, Peter, Peter told him, he says, well, Lord, don't just wash my feet only, but wash my hands and my head. Peter says, I want you to wash me all over. And Christ is teaching the lesson right here that I have washed you by the blood of Jesus Christ. I paid the price for your sins and therefore you will have part with me both now and in heaven because of what I've done for you. But Peter, all of a sudden he got it. He said, I want to have part with you. Don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands. Wash me all over. Make me clean. And the good news is that he was by the blood of Christ. Then it says, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore, he said unto him, ye are not all clean. So then after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done unto you. He said, you call me master and Lord. And ye say, well, for so I am. But he says, here's the lesson right here in this portion of the service. He said, if I then your Lord and master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. That's where he says it. That's where we get it. He says, if I've done it to you, you ought to do it with one another. I remember my pastor, Elder Afton Richards, he said, um, he said, this is a really good. In fact, if you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives a list of reasons there for folks to examine themselves, to examine ourselves before we enter into the communion service. And one of the one of the areas that he uh, addresses the church at Corinth, he says, I hear that there's some divisions among you going on among you. And he said that ought not to be. My pastor used to say, he said, literally speaking, he said, if you've got an ought against anybody within your church family, your church body, you ought to just wash it off into the pan and pour it down the drain and go on from there. 
Now, here's the blessing. Here's the example. If I've done it to you, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Because he says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done unto you. He says, then verily, verily, I say unto you that the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. And then here's the blessing. You might say, well, I see that this is here. I do believe it's been taught. I believe that it's an example right here. But here's the blessing. The blessing is in the doing. He says, if you know these things. He says, if you know, there's a blessing in knowing. But he said, the blessing comes in the doing. He says, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I've through the years been through a lot of communion feet washing services. And every single one that I've ever witnessed when we start the service, it's a very serious, solemn occasion. When we think of the bread and the wine and the body and the blood of Christ. And then we go through the communion, the feet washing service after that. And then all of a sudden you can watch, you can witness how that the countenance changes of individuals. From a serious, solemn occasion to a happy occasion. And that's because it's the fulfillment of this. He says, happy are you? Not if you know it, but happy are you if you do it? God bless you.